All right, please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. So we start kind of in the middle of 5 and end kind of in the middle of 6. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, verse 9. Please follow along as I read. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched or supported by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or knowledge or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. I've entitled this message, Life Destroyed by the Love of Money. In the scriptures, wealth in a society, wealth in a nation, wealth among a people group brings blessing brings a certain help and provision. Wealth in the Scriptures is not evil. 
The love of money is evil. Greed is evil. The hunger for more when you've got enough is evil. A lack of gratitude is evil. Wealth in and of itself is not evil. Wealth does often bring blessing to a society. It allows us to be fed, allows more people to be fed. It allows us to be productive, innovative. Wealth does bring a certain blessing to a society. And as you know, wealth also brings temptations, doesn't it? The human heart lusts and desires for more. Solomon, in this book, warns of the dangers of a love of money. It's not the dangers of money, it's the dangers of the love of money. One writer who wrote about the time of Solomon said this, Israel's population grew steadily during Solomon's era. So it's important to know that when Solomon's writing during his reign, early to mid-900s B.C., during his reign, the nation started to prosper. It started to prosper really under his father, King David, but really prospered under Solomon. It went from being largely a nation where finances were gained, wealth was gained through uh, pasturing work, farming of animals, to then being farming of crops. Now, all of a sudden, international trade comes on the scene during Solomon's time. And so the wealth of the nation starts to grow under Solomon. And that's why we see him in the book of Ecclesiastes warn against the love of pursuing more and more and more and more, which he himself did. He writes as an older man to a younger society saying, be careful of the wealth of a nation. This writer continues, Israel's population grew steadily during Solomon's era. Food was plentiful and the nation was in good spirits. Solomon gained both divine and popular favor. Part of this prosperity stemmed from tribute money brought to the king by countries his father had subdued. So David conquered nations, conquered countries, and they were then subjected to the nation of Israel, and many of those kings and nations would bring their wealth to Solomon. This needed income came from every corner of the promised land and provided the material blessings promised even back to Abraham. So what you need to know about the setting of the writing of the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's, it's a wealthy setting. It's a wealthy nation. It's a time of prosperity. Egypt, Tyre in the north, Syria are all trading partners with Israel at this time. Israel is sending pistachios and they're getting in return cedar trees used for building and grand opulence. There's money going in, there's money coming out. First Kings speaks of this time as silver being as abundant as the stones in Jerusalem. Silver being as abundant as the stones in Jerusalem, and the cedars were as abundant as regular old sycamores. Another writer says this, the effect of luxury upon Israel, as upon every other nation, was to beget a desire for greater luxury. You know, you kind of wish that that statement would say the effect of luxury upon Israel as upon every other nation would be gratitude to God for all that we have. But what's the effect of more wealth coming in? More things desired. This is great. Oh my goodness, I'm thankful for this. What else can I get? That's what the human heart does with God's good gifts. 
in this passage, we understand that we have what we have because our sovereign God has graciously given it to us. He also gives us the ability to enjoy what He's given us. You see how many times enjoyment comes in the book of Ecclesiastes? God does desire a people to be happy with what He provides. The problem is, is that God's creatures are often not satisfied with what He provides, and we want more. So for our outline this morning, we're going to see two painful realities regarding the love of money and then a solution. So how many points is that? Three points. Two painful realities and a solution. Now I'm going to throw you a curveball today, all right? Do you have your second cup of coffee this morning? <clears throat> Normally our outlines kind of start with maybe the first paragraph, point one, second paragraph, point two, third paragraph, point three. I'm not going to throw you a curveball. Solomon's going to throw you a curveball. All throughout the scriptures, writers of prophecy, writers of Hebrew poetry, uh, use uh, a way to communicate a message called a chiasm, all right? So I want you to think about an arrow, okay? So we got the two starts of the arrow, and then they're going to narrow down to the point, all right? You with me so far? Okay, so like, like this, all right? Sorry, if you're listening on audio in your car later this week, I'm sorry, you're not seeing this. Okay, so we, we start here, we start here. So the first part of this passage and the very last part of this passage are saying the same thing, making the same argument. The second part of our passage in front of us in our Bibles and the second to last part of the passage are saying the same things. And they're all driving toward the solution in the very middle of our passage. Okay, so what we're going to see, first point, is that the pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. Now we're going to see that at the beginning Chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, you can look down there if you want. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 12 are going to show us that the pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. But guess what? The end of our passage, chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, are going to say the same thing. It's going to make the same point. Okay, so that's what Solomon's doing. It's a way by using repetition and a mirror effect to communicate the message. And then we're going to see point 2 that it's an evil when people do not enjoy what God has given them. And we're going to see that in chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. 5, 13 to 17. And then down in 6, 1 through 6. And really the solution to all of this comes in the middle of the passage. The solution comes in 5, 18 through 20. Here was, here's the solution. We are to enjoy God's daily gifts. All right, so... Hopefully, I've only lost half of you, and hopefully you can recover, but uh, Solomon's doing this mirror effect to make a point, and he's driving us to a problem, a second problem, and in the middle, a solution, all right? Two painful realities regarding love of money and a solution. Here's the first problem. The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. Let's look first at chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. You ever heard of corrupt politicians? Maybe you read a you know, fantasy book at some point, or you've just experienced real life. There's in a certain location the oppression of the poor, taking from the poor to line the pockets of the wealthy, and the people in charge can have something to do with that. 
So their rich friend lives in the path of the freeway, no problem. They'll make the freeway go left here, displace this poor neighborhood so that their wealthy friend doesn't need to be troubled. This, this happens all throughout history, all throughout the world. If you've seen a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed. For the high official is watched. You might read that in English and think, oh, someone's, someone's kind of seeing that, that they're going to hold them accountable. No, that's not, not what Solomon's saying. The high official is guarded, supported in that by another high official. So follow the money, it goes all the way to the top, is what Solomon could be saying. The high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. They're all in it together. So you're seeing an evil system that benefits those in charge. Verse 9. Before I read verse 9, you might think right here, this is enough to make Solomon an anarchist. Let's do away with all government. It's all corrupt. No, he's simply recognizing there's corruption in governments. But it doesn't make him an anarchist. He also sees that God has given government as a blessing to society. It should be a blessing to society. Verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Solomon recognizes that the government is corrupt. Again, he's not an anarchist. Government is needed to keep the food supply running. If we work together, then we can make sure that things are flourishing so that people can be fed and cared for. So there is a role for government. But Solomon recognizes, but there's, there's a problem. Governments are corrupt. He gets that. There's a certain people in this paragraph pursuing wealth. It's those in charge. They want more and more and more, and they'll even hurt people under their care to get the more. The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. They will keep lusting after more, lusting after more, lusting after more. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Notice the heart desire here. This is not saying he who has a lot of money is a problem. No, the one who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. The more money you have, the more people tend to come knocking at your door. The more you have, the more people you need to help manage that money. Now, in and of itself, again, nothing wrong with that. It's great to own a business and have employees and help to provide by their work for their families. Nothing wrong with that. He's just stating a, a true aspect of life. The more you have, the more people are around, the more people you may be responsible for. And that just creates more headaches, more anxiety, more difficulties, more challenges. Just kind of a reality. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the owner's wealth, all of their things are constantly before them. They walk outside with their cup of coffee and they look at their 10-car garage and it's constantly before them. And when they see it, this person in Ecclesiastes doesn't go, ah, 
orange Ferrari. I'm so grateful. Black four by four truck. I'm so grateful. No, they see it and they think, oh, that one's got a broken this. And oh, my son wrecked this. I've got to pay the increasing insurance rate on, rate on this. That's what Solomon's trying to communicate. They've got a lot, and with that comes difficulty, and that's ever before them. Have you ever met one of those people that own like seven homes? And they say things like, I've got so much to do. The water heater's broken in Vail and the, and the pool pump in, I don't know, pick a place, Buenos Aires, whatever it may be. I've got so much going on and they're so stressed out and you think, you know, I've got a solution for this. <laughs> Call a realtor, <laughs> sell a few of these babies. But this is the point here in Ecclesiastes. When you have more, there's more trouble. There's more anxiety. There's more difficulty. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Now go find the, the personal mechanic to this person with the 10-car garage, and that personal mechanic has work to do on that red Ferrari, and they'll work hard on it all day, and they'll get the job done. They'll receive an income. They'll have enough to feed their family, put a roof over their head, clothe their children, and they go home, and they are asleep. Lights out. They just sleep. But the owner of the house, though he has much, goes to sleep and he wakes up because he's concerned about the lawsuit that this employer brought or this wayward child running off with money, whatever it may be. The point here is more money, more problems, to quote rappers from the 90s, all right? Now, he makes the same point, the pursuit of wealth will not satisfy, at the end of our passage. So go down into chapter 6, verses 7 and 9. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So a man works to get food, to feed himself. Ah, that should be enough. No, his appetite is greater than that. This is a good sandwich. I want five. This is good food. I want barns full. This is good to eat here in this living room. I want 12 living rooms. All right, so he's got enough from his work that God's given him, but his appetite isn't satisfied. He doesn't think he has enough, but does he have enough? Yes, he does. Verse 8, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? So there's a contrast here, a wise person and a foolish person. The foolish person here is the one that is not satisfied even with all the wealth that he has. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man, in this verse here, in this section here, the poor man is the wise one, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living, who simply knows how to manage his affairs and doesn't have 12 houses, but he has one, and he has food, and his kids have clothing? What advantage does he have? And then Solomon says in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Better to know I've got this here right in front of me today. This is good. Then, I've got this. What else can I grab? What else can I do? What else can I go after? Better to see what you have, to be thankful for it, than to keep being frustrated in wanting to go after more. 
So again, Solomon's communicating in this first point, both at the beginning of the passage and at the end of the passage, the pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. Think of longing for more and what that does inside. Longing to be a little bit more secure, a little bit more comfortable. All of us understand this. What did Jesus say when he came and started preaching? He said this, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, which costs money, what you will drink, which costs money, nor about your body, what you will put on, which costs money. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Notice he says there, do not be anxious and he relates it to our wanting of more. And it might not be that we want more because, well, I don't want seven houses. I'm not asking for that. But we want more than we have. So don't be anxious about that. Then in verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat? What shall we drink? Those are future realities, right? It doesn't say, What are we eating now? It's saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Therefore, don't be anxious. So, verse 25, don't be anxious when it comes to finances and the things that you need. Verse 31, don't be anxious about finances and the things that you will need one day. And then in verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, this passage follows after something that was written earlier in the chapter, the Lord teaching his disciples to pray. And he tells them to ask for what they need 30 years from now. No, he doesn't. He tells them to ask for what they need today. Give us this day our daily bread. That's how Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. And later on, he tells those listening, don't be anxious for tomorrow and the concerns of tomorrow. Anxiety and wanting more go hand in hand. Jesus promises enough for today. Many of you know the famous story, the reporter asking John Rockefeller, Mr. Rockefeller, who owned 1% of the nation's wealth. This guy owned a ton. Reporter asked him, how much is enough? How much money is enough? To which Rockefeller replied, just a little more, just a little more reflecting a heart that's not satisfied. This is what Solomon's getting at. Now, here's the point where some of you want me to set parameters for you. Well, then just how much time do I spend thinking through investing for my retirement? Well, then how many cars is too much? You're going to need to work that out. That's not for me to tell you. But I did think through for my own heart this week some questions, so maybe some questions that maybe can diagnose my own heart and get me to think through 
some of these things. So I'll share these questions with you. Am I more worried about my wealth tomorrow than I am thankful today? Am I more worried about my wealth tomorrow or five years from now or 30 years from now than I am thankful for what God has given me today? Second question. Do I need the thing or situation that I dearly want? Do I need it? Third, is the pursuit of just a little bit more affecting my relationship with the people around me that God's given me? Is my pursuit of just a little bit more affecting my relationship with the people that God has given me? In a little bit, in the next point, you're going to see someone who has a lot, loses it in a venture, and has nothing to give his children after him. Last week, or the week before, I can't remember when it was, they all blend together sometimes, we learned of someone who didn't have a family to share his wealth with. So is the pursuit of just a little bit more affecting the people around me? The pursuit of wealth will not satisfy. There's a second painful reality regarding the love of money. Chapter 5, back to verses 13 to 17. Chapter 5, 13 to 17, here it is. It is evil when people do not enjoy what God has given them. It's evil when people do not enjoy what God's given them. Why is this a problem? Because a failure to enjoy what God's given is an attack on him, not just the gift he's given. God, not enough. That's the tragedy of it all. It's evil when people do not enjoy what God has given them. Verse 13 of chapter 5, you might think, oh, Pastor, I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. It's evil when we don't enjoy what God has given us. Aren't you overreacting a bit? Well, maybe I could amend that. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil. So let's make it a little stronger, all right? It's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So, so the idea here is a person is amassing wealth, amassing wealth, amassing wealth, and then as they're amassing wealth, they're taking some risks that they shouldn't be taking. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, those riches were lost in a bad venture. He's selfish, and he's lost it all. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Fathers should have something in their hands to share with their sons, is the thought. But he has nothing. As he, this man, who lost it all, came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So get this, at one point in his life, this person had riches. They had riches. Later in his life, because he was hungry for more and risked his money to get more and then lost it all, later in his life, he sits, he eats in darkness. 
in much vexation and sickness and anger. I mean, you, you just picture a man who at once had it all. The newest this, the newest that, many of those, many of these. And then wanted more and risked in a foolish way to get more. Ended up losing it all. Nothing even to give children. And now they sit at home with a TV dinner on a TV tray, watching television, all alone in the dark. That's the picture here. And the love of money and the failure to simply enjoy what God's given instead of risking it to get even more and more and more, the failure to enjoy brought this man to that place. The same truth is communicated down in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Let's go down there. <coughs> chapter 6, 1 to 6. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun. Again, that word evil. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. So this is not just a wealthy man. It's a, it's a notable man. People know this person. He's honored. So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Now here Solomon's not saying, hey, blame God for this. God allows some people to enjoy life's good gifts and other people, he, he just says, I'm going to be mean and they're not going to enjoy life's good gifts. Someone else will enjoy their income. This, God's not the one that's evil here. This is God's judgment on the person who has not appreciated and enjoyed and been thankful for the gifts God has given them. And in judgment, God says, well, then someone else is going to enjoy them. That's what's happening. Verse 3, chapter 6, if a man fathers 100 children, now that's hyperbole, right? I mean, hopefully, I would think. <laughs> if a man fathers 100 children, that's hyperbole. It's, it's, children are a blessing from God. And so the idea is Picture a guy with a hundred of them. You'd think, man, wealthy. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, another blessing in the Scriptures, long life, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied. You see, this is so much about the heart's desire, the inward desires, not about a number. If you have not this number, you've got too much. Below it, you've got enough. It's not a number. It's about a heart desire. The man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I mean, this is like the final judgment in a sense, this final kind of stamp of disapproval from God. No burial. He, he had a long life, lots of kids, but his soul wasn't satisfied with God's good gifts. He is judged by God. He is he is rebuked by God, even to the point of not even having a burial, which is like an insult at this time. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. A man with a hundred children, a man with long years, many years, long life, you know, the stillborn child who didn't see the sun is better off than that person, Solomon says. For it, the child, comes in vanity and goes in darkness. 
And in darkness, its name is covered. What's that getting at? A stillborn child, yes, might have a name. We might have named him or her, but they don't have a name in the sense of a reputation. They're not known for anything. The darkness covered that. They didn't have that opportunity. That child is better off than this type of man. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Just as a side note, this is one of the reasons I believe that stillborn children end up with God. There's a rest given even to that situation. There are more passages that explain why I believe that, but just side note, okay? It finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. I mean, this, this guy's 2,000 years old. You might think, oh man, what, what a privilege to live to be 2,000 years old. What a life. What a blessing that is. I mean, he can die happy. Nope. A stillborn child is better off than this man. Why? Again, why? Why, why, why? Because his soul wasn't satisfied with what God gave him. Verse 3. Even though he should live to be a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. He dies, the stillborn child dies. It's a grievous evil when people do not enjoy what God has given them. And this is, you know, we don't peer into Ecclesiastes and go, man, that wealthy society in Israel, they should have learned their lesson. We understand that this was not written to us. It was written to them, but it is written for us, for us to learn from. And Paul knew this. Paul told Timothy as he pastors his people in Ephesus, you've got to warn people about the love of money. Pastor Jason read the end of 1 Timothy 6 earlier. A pastor... God, the Holy Spirit, warning people about the love of money. But there's something else in 1 Timothy. Turn to 1 Timothy 6 again, if you will. First Timothy 6. Pastor Jason read the end of the chapter, but I want to read a little bit earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 6, chapter 6, 6. 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment, a happiness in what you have, an appreciation for what you have, godliness with contentment is great gain. So again, get the picture. Someone pursuing wealth, wanting more, not content, is wanting gain, Right? but it's contentment in that godliness that actually produces the gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire, again, see that word, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Again, see the man that risked it all and lost it all. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this that craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now that's, 
a sad and interesting reality. You can look at the Gospel of Mark and Jesus teaching on the parable of the soils. And the parable of the soils is meant to teach a lesson to the disciples who would see people drawn to Jesus and then after a while walk away. And Jesus is teaching that for the disciples good, saying, listen, I'm teaching you something about the nature of people. And there are some people who are going to receive the word. And then after a time, the love of money, the pursuit of wealth is going to get them to walk away from the word, walk away from Christ himself and pursue the things of the world. It is a temptation. The love of money is. And then just to highlight some things Pastor Jason read, but I want you to see them now that you understand what this is saying in Ecclesiastes. Go down to verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So, so it's not wrong to be wealthy. The, the charge is don't be haughty, arrogant about that, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The hopes aren't in how you've aligned your portfolio. The hope is on God who richly provides us with everything. Now see this nice word that we hear over and over again in Ecclesiastes? God provides us with our wealth to enjoy it. This is very Solomon-like here when Paul's writing to Timothy. I take comfort in this. God doesn't just go, okay, here's some for you, here's some for you, here's some for you. No, no, no. My son, my daughter, enjoy this gift. Enjoy it. God is a God of joy. He wants His people to enjoy the good gifts that He gives. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, and this is so good, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Ah, see right there, he's saying build wealth so you can store it up and be, be supplied for the future. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share, and that is storing up wealth for yourself. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So good. The Bible speaks with one voice about the danger of pursuing wealth and the danger of not being satisfied with the wealth that God so graciously gives us to enjoy. Back to Ecclesiastes. As you're turning back there, I want you to picture a 25-year-old, all right? This 25-year-old grew up had a gracious and kind mother and father. They're gone now. This young man grew up cruel to other people, used other people, stole from other people, mistreated other people, was sentenced to prison, went to prison for a long time. And yet, he's told one day, your penalty's been paid. There's a family that's going to take you in simply because they have a love for you. Walks out of the prison. What in the world is going on here? Don't know why I'm coming out. And there's a family there saying, we know what you've done. We love you. 
we want to provide care for you. They bring young men home. It's 4.30 or so in the afternoon. They bring the young men home and they say, listen, we've obtained work for you. We've got clothing for you. Look at the closet. All yours. We've got food for you. I mean, look right here. Filet. Just perfect. Asparagus, mashed potatoes. I mean, just, we've got it right here. And we're going to give you meals every day. We're going to provide work for you so that you can pay for the things that you need. And most of all, behind all this, we really care about you. You are created in God's image. You're worth something. God created you purposefully, and we recognize that, and we love you. And this 25-year-old looks at the clothes, looks at the filet, and says, what else do I get? Now, some of you want to um, discipline that 25-year-old right now, don't you? <laughs> hey, Junior, hold, hold on. Let me, folks, let me step in here and have a talk to Junior. That is me. And that's you. This is what we do. Oh, I'm so thankful for this meal. Oh, I need more. What else can I get? What else is there? Thanks, God. That's cute. I want this. You ever given a gift to a kid? And they take it, and they're like looking behind your back. Like, is there more? And you're like, okay. (laughs) That's all of us. We are all financial sinners. We all lust for more. Solomon says it's an evil when people don't enjoy what God has given them. I want you to recognize as I close here, go ahead to the next or third and final point. I want you to recognize the application that so often comes up in this book. Two big exhortations for us. Enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy it. And revere God. Revere God. That's Solomon's solution here. Enjoy what God's given. Revere God for who He is. One of the aspects of His character is that He's a provider and He's generous. generous, And He wants people to enjoy the gifts He gives. It's evil when people do not enjoy what God has given them. So, by way of contrast, enjoy what God's given you. Thank Him. Consider it. Consider all the things He provides. Now we come to the point of the arrow. So we've seen two problems, right? We've seen two problems. We finally come to the solution, which is smack dab in the middle of our passage. We are to enjoy God's daily gifts. This is what Solomon's preaching. Chapter 5, verse 18, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. God has given you a few days in the scheme of eternity. So work hard, enjoy what God's given you. 
Be thankful for what God's given you. That's a good thing. That's Solomon's solution. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So listen, it's not just that God's giving you a gift, food, clothing, provision, a swimming pool, whatever, wardrobe, a second car. It's not just that God's given that gift. He's also gifted you in the ability to enjoy that gift. So it's not just the thing. It's also the enjoyment of that thing is a gift from God. We want to be careful that, you know, when something comes across our plate, man, a neighbor just gave me that car, that we don't do things like this. Well, okay, I'm not supposed to, you know, have idols, and so I'm not really going to enjoy it. I'm, I'm going to thank the giver of that, but that car, well, it's no big deal. It can come or go. No, enjoy it. Look at the paint job. That's amazing. God, thank you for that. I mean, enjoy God's gifts. Celebrate them. Have you tasted a Butterfinger blizzard? Enjoy it. Exclaim. Verse 20. This is so good. Chapter 5, verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I love this. Have you ever... Have you ever said the thing that I've often said? <laughs> Maybe you look at your kids or your grandkids or you just look at life and you go, oh man, it goes so fast in kind of a negative sense. We understand that. Even that's a blessing from God. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Go back to the guy who lost it all, squandered it all. Remember he's sitting, eating his TV dinner on his TV tray with no one around. It's dark. He's in his apartment. He's lost it all. The days seem to go on forever for that guy. One lonely day after another one. This person who's satisfied in what God's given has enjoyed them. They've enjoyed their children. They've enjoyed their grandchildren. They've enjoyed their coworkers. They've just been enjoying the gifts God's given them. They're thankful for all these things. And they look back and go, man, that went by fast. But God gave them that. The days don't seem long and burdensome. The days are full of blessings. They look back and go, man, that happened fast. That's what Solomon's communicating. I love that. I took time to kind of rehearse this over and over again throughout the week. That last phrase, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Just think about that for a few minutes this week. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God just keeps giving these gifts to this person. He's keeping us occupied with things to be joyful and thankful for. I mean, I don't know, go through your closet today. <laughs> Take one shirt. God gave me this for a covering, this for warmth. And it, it's, it's nice, too. It's nice to look at. And put it back, and, and I've got this one. And you look down, you're walking on a floor, not dirt. God's given me something other than a dirt floor. 
You go outside your car and you look at your car. God's given me the ability to go places quickly compared to the rest of human history. You kind of see something, you look at the back of the car and there's a spare tire hanging out. I've got more than I need. I mean, I got not only four, I got five tires just in case. God gives good gifts. I was thinking about this. I mean, every item in your kitchen, every item in your home, in your garage, every job you have, I mean, these are just gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. So sometimes we'd say, you know, just thank God for your home. I'm going to like say, let's go even deeper. Let's look in every corner and pull out every sheet and every, I don't know, sponge. I mean, that's a gift. I mean, look at everything. He's so good to us. We have rebelled against our Creator, wanted to go our own way, and He sent His Son because He loves us to forgive us of all of that rebellion and to adopt us into His family. And He says, here's a stake, here's a wardrobe, here's a job, here's what you need. And I'm just saying it's good It's good for me. This passage is good for me this week. It's good for me to see, look how much he's given us. Such a good God. Such a father. Now, as I told you before, and I'll say it again, a rabbi would agree with most of what I said this morning. (laughs) But we're not Jewish. The fact that Jesus came, God in human flesh, that makes a difference. What difference does it make? Well, in Jesus, we see the benevolence of God, don't we? We see the giving of God. It's one thing to look at a car or groceries and to say, man, God is good. But when God gives his own perfect son to die and be executed in our place for our sins and gives us his son's own righteousness for our merit, that is a gift like none other. God is a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would depend on him, believe in him, trust in him, trust in that gift of salvation would not perish and go to the grave in a sad situation and experience eternity in hell separated from God, which is deserved, would not perish but would have everlasting life, and that is a good life, a life where you're welcomed into a family, where you receive the fatherhood of God forever, the goodness and the provision of God forever. Why? Because God is good, because God gives good gifts, namely His Son. thought about those words in chapter 517 of the man sitting in the dark, vexation, Sickness and anger are words that accompanied that man, weren't they? Ecclesiastes 5.17. Sitting in darkness, vexed, anxious, in sickness, maybe spiritual sickness, maybe physical sickness, and angry. Think about what we're invited into when God sets His Son before us to take our sins and give His righteousness. Think about what Jesus has offered us. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ brings you into the light. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we were brought out of the darkness into his, I love Peter's adjective there, marvelous light.
if you're a financial sinner like I am, if you hunger and lust for more and more and more and are often not satisfied with God's good gifts, I've got good news for you. God has brought His Son to bring you from darkness into the light. He's brought His Son to not make you anxious about money, but to give you rest. I read Matthew 6 earlier. He says at the very end, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That's meant to calm us because our Father is looking out for us. So for darkness, we receive life. For vexation, we receive rest. For sickness, we receive health. Spiritual health brought to the one who trusts and depends on Jesus. Physical health. Forever and eternity with God. And no more anger. That's the fruit of the flesh, Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit, what God does when He saves you, puts Himself inside of you to now live and think differently, to operate differently. Now as a child of His, He puts in your heart not anger, but joy and peace. Jesus makes a difference. Read Ecclesiastes with Jesus in mind. Jesus came to do something about our sin. He came to do something about our souls that go astray. He came to be our provider in every single way. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It is good to be in Christ Jesus because it means we're a child of the Father who will supply everything we need. So brother and sister, spend time with your father this week. Spend time thanking him for his care. It wouldn't be a bad idea to start listing things. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Little things, big things, people. Tell him that you trust him. Tell him that you want to enjoy his gifts. Tell him that you want to enjoy him, the hand behind those good gifts. Enjoy life. Revere God. Enjoy life. Revere God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for failing to enjoy what you've so often graciously given to us. Forgive us for looking past your gifts and past you for more. Father, thank you for bringing in another gift as a solution, your own son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have. Thank you for forgiving us for wanting more and not being satisfied. You don't hold that against us. Father, make us thankful for your gifts and for the fact that you are our Father. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.